to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 67. And uh, wow, we are now more than two-thirds of the way to that elusive 100, which is a landmark for podcasts. Very excited to be uh, creeping up that first 100 ladder. Very excited to uh, have continued support from so many people. Very excited to know that there are people who are uh, supporting Counterpunch and having entered into the project through the podcast. I've gotten a few emails about that. Really appreciate that. Really makes me feel good to know that the podcast is contributing to keeping a space open on the left, online, a space where we can discuss critical issues that are, I think, of paramount importance, such as the ones we're going to be touching on today. Before I turn to my guest, though, I just want to make note that I think it's really important that we support projects like Counterpunch, among others, and that we keep those spaces open. So if you want to give to Counterpunch, it's always a good thing to do. You can also subscribe to the print magazine. That's a great way of supporting the uh, supporting the website, supporting the project, the work that Josh and Jeff and Becky and the entire team at Counterpunch do. Um, also, I haven't been uh, mentioning this in recent weeks, but uh, anybody who wants to give positive reviews on iTunes, that's always greatly appreciated. The more reviews we get, the more this show gets recommended to other people as they explore the iTunes store or you know various other podcast directories. So uh, do keep in mind that if you if you don't have the money to support financially, you can always support by spreading the word through iTunes reviews or sharing these episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, elsewhere. Anyway, I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm very excited to welcome Shane Burley onto the show. Shane is a journalist and a filmmaker based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, his work has appeared in many, many places, including Think Progress, Waging Nonviolence, In These Times, Labor Notes, Roar Magazine, and Makeshift. He has provided uh, interviews and research on fascism to Huffington Post to The Guardian. He is, in many ways, one of the leading authorities we have on this uh, growing fascist movement, this growing fascist threat, both in the United States and in Europe, and I'm very happy to uh, have Shane on the program. Follow him uh, on his website, shaneburley.net, and on Twitter at Shane underscore Burley one. Shane Burley, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for having me. So I'm um, very happy to have you on the show today because I've been itching to talk about this issue uh, of the rising, you know, the so-called alt-right, the rise of the neo-fascist movement. This is something that it's recently gotten some media attention, but as I think with all things corporate media, it is utterly superficial. It is mostly, I think, fluff, and it really, I think, um, obscures and or ignores a lot of the major issues. So let's just start with this general question. Do you think we're witnessing the rise of a neo-fascist movement? And how would you define what it is that we're witnessing right now? Um, I, I think we would define it as the rise of a right populism. I think it it's it can be considered within the realm of fascism. I think what obscures the issue a lot is to compare it to really extreme examples like Nazi Germany and then not be able to see kind of the, uh, the forest for the trees. Um, it compares a lot more to the right populist um, organizations we see in Europe, like the Front National in France, um, 
and it has all the potentials to kind of see itself through as a fascist movement, but it's also one that takes place in a unique American context, one that's in the 21st century. So it's unique in that way. And in that way, there's a lot that we don't know about it. Well, there's no doubt about that. And I do agree with you that uh, the parallels are not precise and they're not, uh, you know, 100% um, identical at the same time. Of course, I do think that those of us who pay attention to history all, all certainly notice some warning signs. So let's let's just back up before we get into this question about Nazi Germany and all of these other comparisons. Um what is the so-called alt-right? Is that really the term that you think is appropriate? And um, how are we seeing the trajectory of this movement evolving? Right. Yeah, I do think it's the term that's appropriate. Um, there's been a lot of discussion lately about whether or not to use the term. I am rabidly in favor of using the term for a lot of reasons. Um, the alt-right is a fascist movement. It's not something dramatically new. It's just the new branding and the new generation and the new tactical set of a fascist movement that's been going on since the interwar European period. So it's not something dramatically new. It's not fascism light. It's not diet white supremacy. It is the full-blown um, category. Um, what it what makes it unique is that it developed out of um, a sort of series of dissident strains around 2010, uh, where Richard Spencer, he's the person that runs the National Policy Institute and the Raid External, he's become kind of the, the media go-to person for the alt-right. Um, he basically latched onto these dissident strands from white nationalism to paleoconservatism to the right-wing um, analogs to libertarianism, radical traditionalist Catholics, ethnic pagans, a whole bunch of kind of... Uh, um, weirdos of the right and uh, made this kind of catch-all term alt-right and what it has done is to create kind of a general community for somewhat dissident strains that intersect with each other on things like race and gender and all um, kind of issues of, of counter-oppression so that's kind of where we are with the alt-right what's given it its character its uniqueness is its uh, focus on being tech heavy on trolling, on using social media, on using kind of trending hashtags, on uh, having its own media, things like that. So what's important about the term is that it's tactically and strategically not the same as fascists of the past. When people call this to say, oh, well, they're just Nazis, um, some of them certainly are Nazis, um, and they certainly have a Nazi level of racism and anti-Semitism and fascist politics, but tactically they're very unique, and so people need to understand that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that this this term uh, alt-right as a catch-all, I think that's the correct way to view it. But you used a word that I've used repeatedly in talking about these issues on social media and elsewhere, and that is branding, or maybe a better way to say it would be rebranding. And in many ways, this, this, this alt-right that we're seeing, it is a rebranded version of the typically uh, white nationalist, white supremacist uh, variant of fascism that we know in the United States. States. Obviously, in the U.S., because of the U.S.'s unique social conditions and history, uh, fascism never developed here in the way that it did in the in its European counterpart. But we did have a uniquely American-style fascism, particularly, of course, with Jim Crow and the Jim Crow South. And I think that a lot of these strains, as you called them, are coming together into, I think, what is increasingly looking like a galvanized and organized organized fascist movement. Now, it may not be there yet, it may still be in its infancy, but that's part of the reason why we need to be discussing it, discussing it openly and unabashedly. 
Right, right. Um, and there's a lot of fear, I think, in discussing it because one of the, the they do want exposure, and so people walk, kind of walk this line, maybe able to discuss it openly and figure out counter solutions without not giving them the exposure that they crave. You know, one of the things that they've done with this rebranding. Um, is actually to evolve their ideas to a degree, is to see that some of their ideas lost favor for decades. Some of their ideas had to be repackaged. Some of them had to be restated. Um, one of the big inspirations for the alt-right has been the European New Right, which is not something that really ported over to the U.S. for until very recently. Um, and it was kind of a, a novel kind of philosophic rebranding of fascism it was like, how do we take these fascist ideas and learn from the left in terms of having kind of an academic discourse of having, you know, conferences affecting metapolitics, basically, you know, if they wanted to create a right wing Frankfurt school, for example. And so uh, philosophers like uh, Le de Menoir and uh, Guillaume Fay in France took a lot of the ideas and kind of shifted them to a degree. And so you see things like ethno-pluralism or ethno-differentialism. And this really is kind of a, an intellectual justification for, for ethnic separatism. Yes. And so a lot of this um, ha has done things like taking elements that are conventionally associated with the left, anti-imperialism, environmentalism, um, anti-colonialism, indigenous solidarity, and then reframe them within a right-wing narrative. Yes. And so with the alt-right today, they're trying to do a lot of these sorts of things Part of it is rebranding, but part of it is also the rethinking of themselves and trying to find a politic that they think is going to be more effective in the future. You're 100% right. You're 1000% right, Shane. That is exactly what has happened. I've talked a lot about, and I've gotten a lot of flack, I have to say, among uh, people who self-describe as anti-imperialists, as I always have, um, because essentially the anti-imperialist movement, to the extent that some such a thing exists, has been utterly infiltrated i have to say we, we have to be honest about it it's been utterly infiltrated by fascists and various far-right lunatics and many of them associated with people like alexander dugan and the russian variant of of, of this new right neo-fascist ideology many of them with from a variety of strains from a variety of places but all of them sort of using what i think needs to be referred to as entryist or entryism tactics in order to not only delegitimate what we always have referred to as a sort of as a left-wing anti-capitalist version of anti-imperialism from the sort of anti-imperialism that is um, purportedly and allegedly supported by, you know, RT, for example, Russian media, Dugin, the Duganist movement, various other strains of this, and of course in France, as you mentioned, Le Pen, many others. There are many different strands that are coming together in what I, ha I believe has to be called the infiltration of anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist discourse. Right, right. And I think what you, you outline with anti-imperialism may be the, the largest target of it. Um, and it has been for years, you know, like you mentioned with, with Dugan, um, there's nothing anti-imperialist about uh, Dugan's, um, fourth political theory. And what it is, is kind of a Eurasianist imperialism. It's a counter imperialism. Um, they want an imperialism of Russia in a lot of ways, or even just an imperialism themselves or racial imperialism. But one of the things that drives the right wing anti-imperialism is not this kind of, uh, belief to liberate the belief in the need to liberate oppressed people from dominant nations. That's not what's driving it. What's driving it is an isolationist kind of force of identity. They yes. want the U S to be a nation 
of uh, white Americans first to not intervene on foreign nations. Um, and because they want a white ethnostate, they want they, they need to make their rhetoric consistent. They want to say, OK, if we don't want people to intervene in our white ethnostate, we're not going to intervene in their nations and we're going to help them strengthen their identities and things like that. All of which is done to serve a kind of dominant white identity, identitarian narrative. Um, and so you see um, their ideas and their kind of rhetoric seep into a lot of these areas. You see it around the, the, the Syrian conflict. You see it around discussions uh, about ISIS and what an appropriate response to ISIS is. You see it around um, conversations, especially in Palestinian solidarity, um, specifically because of the anti-Semitism that they bring to the table. Uh, and then you see it also in, in kind of para-movements like bioregionalism, for example, um, where they their own vision of kind of um, environmental utopias are ones that are ethnically homogenous and tribal. Yes, and and one of the one of the principal characteristics of their overall uh, global worldview, I would say, is I guess what could be called a, a a form of global apartheid. Right? It is essentially that the whiteies stay in the white countries, the darkies in the darky countries, the browns in the brown countries, and everyone lives into a glorious utopian future because that's the natural state of humanity. I mean, that is essentially, and I mean, I, I know it's being reductionistic to an extent and I'm oversimplifying it, but ultimately that is how they view the world and their uh, version of quote-unquote anti-imperialism is such that it is essentially pro-Russian imperialism or pro-any imperialism that isn't Western, liberal, multicultural, neoliberal imperialism. And it may seem like an arbitrary distinction, but in the minds of the far right, especially in Europe and in Russia, it is absolutely essential to make that distinction. Right, right. Their understanding of imperialism is multicultural cosmopolitan society. That's what empire means to them. Yes. That's why there's very specific language that's chosen. They don't go after globalization as you know, anarchists did in the 1990s. They go after globalism. Globalism is an international multicultural world, one that has cultural exchange and sharing and the development of new cultures. That's what they're going after. It's not like the international problems of free trade or something or the crushing of labor unions in the third world. That's not what their image of globalism is. Uh, it's just like when you see a lot of this discussion of modernity um, where they kind of go after the cosmopolitan effects of consumer capitalism. Now, they, they mimic a lot of the language of the left that you'll see in places like Adbusters, for example, of like, you know, the, the deteriorating social effects of capitalism. But they do it very specifically because what it does is – and under their view is deracinate tribal community. Um, it goes after primitive um, traditional families or things like that. So it's not something that, that the, while it shares those kind of analogs on the left, it's for very, very different reasons. That's right. And and the other thing that we should keep in mind is that much of the alt-right discourse is rooted in code words and coded language. And I think that people need to be clear about that. So, you know, for instance, when you hear Alex Jones for many, many years, in fact, talking about the globalists, right, or globalism, this is always and inevitably rooted in things like the Rothschilds run the world, the global Jew banker conspiracy, and many other, um, you know, long-standing, I 
I think, core tenets of uh, the fascist worldview that have since been also rebranded thanks to the conspiracy fringe, thanks to the popularization of these memes online and so forth. And so, you know, that's why when you hear, you know, Richard Spencer or people like that talk about the quote unquote global Jew when they're talking about globalism, that's what they're referring to. It's essentially the insidious rotten apple that spoils the bunch. It is the globalist, this this multicultural global community uh, variant that they rigidly and and structurally oppose. Yeah, the the conspiracy worldview on international affairs cannot be delinked from anti-Semitism. It doesn't matter what you do to the language; you can sanitize it all you want. It's always, always rooted in that because that is the history of conspiracy theories that's the history of the development of this idea of a a secret coded elite because it's not an understanding rooted in capitalism for example it's not an idea that's rooted in um the obvious control of you know rich people of resources and nations i mean that's a very commonly understood kind of marxist analysis it's not that it's one that really codes the idea that there's an underlying elite secret government of a tribal elite and in this way it's an ethnic elite so when you do the rothschild it's all about bloodlines and relationships and things like that all of which is coded with the understanding that it's actually a biological elite that controls things and that's an anti-semitic narrative and it's one that the alt continues they believe that the the uh that jews hold a higher than average verbal intelligence and that they use ethnocentric traits to undermine western nations to create false ideologies that confuse non-jews and therefore they're able to kind of um, secretly uh, gain dominance and and higher access to resources and they'll say uh, and they'll say that both fascism and communism are both uh twin devils spawned by the jews on uh for the purposes of keeping the world fighting with each other and capitalism. And capitalism. All the yeah. ideologies, anything that, that, that makes uh, white people not remember their spiritual legacy. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a way of just creating them as the, the basis for all problems. Kevin McDonald is the kind of modern scholar of anti-Semitism. I mean, not, not the modern scholar. Of He's the modern um, uh, Karl Marx of anti-Semitism. He's the person that kind of gave... Um, uh, academic legitimacy to the ideas that have been around there for a century. Um, and what he tries to trace back is that Jews are responsible for basically every possible left-wing social progress or movement. So Freudianism, um, Bosian anthropology, uh, the Frankfurt School, um, and then, of course, neoconservatism, on the other hand, um, the development of early capitalism, obviously all forms of Marxism, all of these are Jewish. Um, all, and he, you know, he'll try and show last names and, oh, well, this person was related to this person, so clearly they're Jewish. Um, and that's basically his explanation for history. All the, anything that go, runs counter to the idea that, that races are unequal or that ethnic interests are the most important, um, anything that runs counter to that is then, in essence, Jewish in some way. Um, well, and you know, you know what's, what's interesting? Jewish um, so it's always it's always about this notion that Jews are responsible for um, any kind of left wing turn, any social shift that could possibly undermine whatever their ethnic vision is. 
What's interesting about this too is that when you when you actually look at it um, specifically with regard to uh, the relationship between these sorts of movements and uh, the state of Israel, it's this very interesting dissonance where on the one hand, these are rabid uh, fascist anti-Semites. On the other hand, they really like what Israel is all about. It is the ethno-nationalist uh, fascist state, I would argue. It is one that practices apartheid. It is one that really uh, pushes back against any uh, tainting of the so-called white identity of, uh, you know, Israeli Jews. And so there is this bizarre kind of uh, convergence between these rabid anti-Semites and the hardcore Zionist elements in Israel and around the world. Uh, it's mixed, though. I wouldn't say that's monolithic. I mean, you ask someone like David Duke, he doesn't support what Israel's about. Um, he'll go after Israel at any point. Um, there's a huge contingent that uses Israel as the example of a caricature that they've made of Jews, uh, and usually unfairly so. Um, there is another contingent that likes Israel because they want to see Jews in a state that's not theirs. Um, and so they want to kind of uh, further stoke anti-Semitism and basically say, no, go to Israel. Um, and that's been a, a line that's happened a lot. And at the same time, um, they often will want to use some of Israel's racial examples of, uh, of apartheid, basically, um, as examples for what they'd like to emulate. So it really is all across the the board in response to Israel. Well, but, and, and specifically with regard to the politics of it, though, I, I think that a lot of them, you know, you see this around, say, issues like the refugee crisis. You see a lot of them kind of upholding I Israeli-style policies when it comes to the Palestinians, uh, you know, the ethnic cleansing and all of the rest of that as as really kind of a model for how uh, Europe should, quote-unquote, defend itself or how the United States should, quote-unquote, defend itself. I think what they do um, is create they, they use any example they can to develop a narrative. Um, one of the things you see quite a bit is these discussions about earlier white empires. Oftentimes they're not actually historically white, but they, they frame them as that and then use some form of, of uh, some example of uh, conquest as an example of what's happening today. So they want to liken themselves to Vikings. So they'll discuss about the, the Vikings defending against invaders and that kind of thing. It's about creating kind of a mythological narrative for themselves. Um, with Israel, it's, it's tough because, um, you know, we're not talking about people who are very well steeped in international politics. So their examples usually fall flat. There was a larger investment um, in discussions about Israel in the 90s from white, white white nationalists. And over recent years, they've really shifted things to talking about Russia, talking about Ukraine uh, and talking about the U.S. as a unique situation. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Although, you know, if you if you follow a lot of these conversations in social media, they you know, these people talk out of both sides of their mouth as quite predictably, um, you know, on the one hand, they 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 are fluent in the language of anti Zionism, you know, that that is, you know, couching it in defending Palestinian rights, although I don't think that's really what it's about at all. And uh, secondly, they can also kind of, you know, use the anti Semitic, you know, language that is the, the, the trident true tactic of the far right and i think that it's both and i don't think that they're necessarily conscious of the cognitive dissonance uh between those 
No, because the thing that unites it is anti-Semitism for them. I mean, it's about hating Jews. Um, it's, I mean, everything about Israeli policy that they want to go after is about hating Jews. Um, they, it's not that people like David Duke are so adept at caring for the Palestinians and so kind of um, put together in terms of his anti-imperialist politics that that's what drives him. It's always been about finding different ways to to target and label Jews. What they've done is find something that they can manipulate for that purpose. They've co-opted the language. They've co-opted the language of Palestinian solidarity just as they've co-opted the language of anti-imperialism. And I think that this is really the larger, the larger trend that I'm pointing to it's the co-optation of the language rhetoric tactics of the left and transforming it into the language rhetoric and tactic of a neo-fascist movement. Right, but that's also been, that's the parlance of fascism, period. I mean, that's one of the defining features of it, is to adopt things of the left for right-wing purposes. That's true, so, yes. So there's always this kind of linking point of people talk about there's left-right crossover, where uh, the right then starts to appropriate elements of the left, but they never do it, it's never an actual ideological synthesis, it's always the kind of underlying right-wing metapolitics. One of the things that's important about the new right and the alt-right and things like that is the development of a metapolitics. What are the ideas and identities and beliefs that come before political decisions. And so what they want to do is, is uh, undermine the way that whites see themselves, to create kind of a right-wing culture, to read art and things like that. And so what happens in, with the left is what they like to do is to adopt certain political elements of the left for their own metapolitics. And so they might, for example, go after the workers' movement and say, no, we need kind of a class collaborationist worker state. They might go after the environmental, they usually go after the environmental movement and then say, you know, we actually want a world of natural order. And their vision of natural order is some kind of primitive uh, social Darwinism or racial science. Um, you know, they'll go after animal rights in the exact same way with a really similar narrative. And they've done that really, especially in the anti-war and anti-imperialism, um, by saying like, no, what we need is nations to think of themselves and to identify with themselves. And so it's always been about trying to find what left-wing tools they can to create a more revolutionary vision of their own ideas. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. And and in fact, uh, I agree 100% that the the very um, you know playbook of fascism is the appropriation of uh, left-wing terminology. I mean, just I mean just for simple reference, is the National Social Workers Party, you know, the Nazi party, right? The socialist being the term that was used and co-opted, and I think that we're seeing a lot of that today, but unfortunately I think that a lot of people are missing that point. They're not fully appreciating that, so you have people who are self-described communists and socialists, and um, they are, you know, whether it's the issue of Syria or whether it was, you know, Ukraine or any number of issues, they find themselves in alignment with these with these fascist characters and because of that they don't actually recognize the nature of the people standing next to them right all right um you know something like like terms like national socialism which feel like such a uh, a kind of a, a conflation of terms that don't belong together what it says is for example they want to use some version of socialism to achieve their own ends if socialism and though this is kind of a limiting scope on, on understanding socialism, but if socialism was command economic measures in some way, what they would use is to use them to enforce inequality rather than equality. They would use the tools of the left to do kind of the opposite of leftist goals. So with, you know, fascist states in interwar Europe, um, where kind of social democracy was becoming um, 
kind of an uh, option on the left, as we saw through the second half of the of the 20th century, um, what they would use is use those state mechanism to actually reinforce class boundaries and say, no, actually, we're going to use these to enforce hierarchy rather than uh, class mobility. And so you're going to see that in all forms uh, where they adopt those things. If they're going to go after the environmental movement, it's going to be to create kind of a, a social Darwinist uh, environmental states. It's going to be to uh, approach the environment as a cruel kind of um, uh, unconcerning um, uh, trope rather than kind of the, the deep ecology that you actually see in the radical environmental movement. So it's always kind of a twisting of those leftist ideas. Definitely. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. And then on the other side of the break, I want to uh, continue this conversation and I want to bring up a couple of other issues, one of which might be a bit uncomfortable for some people listening, but I think it's important to discuss. So I'll continue the conversation with Shane Burley on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much. We will be right back. Chase those laser fascists out of town, out of town. I will labor to build this country. I will labor to build this town. Now you look me with a smile and you're mad to see Heil. See Heil. We're gonna chase those laser fascists out of town. Out of town, out of town They call us when they need our labor Rip us off and then they want good behavior And if this song offends you, you're a fascist too Fascist We're gonna chase those hypocrites out of town Radio. I'm chatting with Shane Burley. Again, you should be following Shane's work. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Shane underscore Burley one. You can also go to the website shaneburley.net. That's S-H-A-N-E-B-U-R-L-E-Y.net. Uh, Shane's work on the far right and the development of fascist movements and, and fascist politics, I think is it's some of the best. And that's why I'm very glad to have Shane on the show. So, um, 
picking up where we left off before the break, Shane, I want to ask you this question. I'm going to keep it general, and then maybe I'll get a little bit more specific in a follow-up. But to what extent do you think the rise of the alt-right and neo-fascism or whatever we want to call it, to what extent is that uh, attributable or a result of the failure of the left? Um, I mean, you know, just what do you think about that? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it would have existed without the left, um, but the left gives it its character through its opposition. So I think um, what the alt-right likes to do is to stake its claim, its kind of cultural claim for making fun of the left or for going after parts of the left. And what they do is they like to go after the the low-hanging fruit. They don't go after... Um, you know, uh, the actual ideological left, or they don't go after the well-organized left, they go after kind of the more silly examples found on the internet, and they use that as part and parcel for what the left is. Um, and they do that especially for trying to go after anti-racism and feminism. Um, they'll try and find what something that they could they could target as being silly, and then they use that as the archetype for the entire movement. Um, the right's always done that to some degree. They've always tried to stoke um, reactionary fears in that way. But the alt-right has done it especially well in kind of a, a, a an angry online discourse in which they've uh, created their own identity. What I'm what I'm also wanting to probe here, though, is, um, you know, let me let me back up in 2011 um, during the early days of Occupy. Uh, I, you know, I'm in New York, so I was at Occupy Wall Street. And one of the things that I was trying to do was to raise the conversation in the middle of this burgeoning movement to raise the conversation about opposing the war in Libya. At the time, NATO was bombing Libya. Ultimately, Gaddafi was, of course, brutally assassinated. And uh, there was, I have to say, almost no organized resistance to that war. There was almost no organized even outcry from a lot of corners on the left, many of whom were sort of transfixed by the notion that they were supporting a revolution in Libya. But again, the question is, that moment opened up a huge um entry point for a lot of these far-right elements to infiltrate into what I've always considered to be anti-imperialism. And so you have a lot of these far-right fascist elements that took a hard stand on Libya, that did the same thing in Syria for, I think, uh, much more dubious reasons and under more dubious circumstances. But be that as it may, these key issues of war and particularly U.S. NATO war, that has opened up the floodgates for the far-right infiltration of anti-imperialism where traditionally that should really have been the domain of the left. Right. They were dubious in the support of Libya as well. I, I, I think we need to like make clear that there was that the right wing was incredibly dubious in all of this. Um, I so while I would agree to a point that certainly gives them an avenue, especially um, with what the results of the Libyan campaigns were, the ethnic, uh, the ethnic cleansing in Libya, but um, I had, I would be still surprised because I still feel like in a lot of ways the Libyan conflict was one that actually went under the radar and went underreported quite a bit, and I didn't see personally it being as much of a motivating politic. I think what can be said maybe more broadly that through the Obama administration, his inability to ramp anything back this started during the Bush administration kind of uh, discredited the center left 
in a lot of ways. Um, the way that we were talking about ramping up form and intervention, um, continuing Gitmo, things like that, definitely discredited um, the idea that Democrats or any parts of the center left would come in and oppose war, uh, oppose uh, you know bombing campaigns, oppose um, uh, going after civil liberties, things like that. So I think in a lot of ways that discredited it. Um, I think what we've seen over a number of years is a revolt against the mainstream, both on the right and the left. And you can see that with a growing radical left wing. And you can see it with the rise of Trump, because what there was is generally a rejection of beltway conservatism. Uh, both that and the Democrats have kind of seemed to fail um, by uh, average folks, people who hadn't been involved in politics before. And I think in a lot of ways that's happening in terms of giving uh, fascist access to these different movements and seeing that uh, the more moderate left um, and always the more moderate right has failed to do anything substantial. Right. What I mean to say, though, and I just want to clarify what I'm getting at, just because I have personal experience with this phenomenon, is that those of us on the left who were saying hands off Libya at the time, or were saying hands off Syria from the beginning or whatever, you know, we find we have found ourselves oftentimes assailed by other people on the left who have, you know, for various reasons supported, you know, various various sides in these conflicts. But what I'm what I'm getting at is that you have people on the far right. Right, who come in? Who, who come in support of things like hands off Libya, hands off Syria, for very cynical reasons that then, in in many ways, I think fractures the left and strengthens the right, and that's this sort of some seemingly counterintuitive phenomenon we we experience when we have when we take these positions in this current political climate. Um. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 again, though, I'm not with Libya specifically. I would be a little surprised if that was a large fracture. I guess you might know better than I would about it. Um, I think, though, what it does send a testament to is that people need to have, I guess, stricter restrictions on who those organizations are allowing in and really explicit understandings of what entryism looks like. You know, if we're talking about anti-war organizations that have a left-wing orientation. There needs to be a really clear idea about what the far right looks like, what their goals are, and what the politics they are bringing in so people can kind of understand when that's happening. Um, because having a really clear anti-imperialist politic that's founded on, uh, on left-wing ideas doesn't allow for the far right in. And so having that really clearly stated and understood and discussed in those circles regularly is something that can really kind of premeditate that. Well, you know, I, I, I got to tell you that I, I wish I could say that I totally agree. But unfortunately, I find that there are a number of organizations that I know personally that in theory do have pretty strict understandings about who's allowed in and what kind of politics they're supposed to have. And yet they find themselves carrying water for fascists. And there there is in many ways... Um, it's not just about the organizations themselves. It's also about the narrative and the discourse. You know, look at how look at how intensely uh, Russian media has been able to influence the discourse about uh, various issues. Whether it was Trump, whether it's the refugee crisis, whether it's the war in Syria or whatever. And again, we have to be very clear about what that really means. It's not simply about providing an alternative viewpoint. It's also a view 
vehicle for a political infiltration. That's something that we need to be aware of. And uh, RT, for example, I'll just hold up. They had the best coverage, in my opinion, on the war in Libya in 2011. And today they have the worst coverage, meaning the most outwardly pro-fascist coverage, maybe of any organization, including Fox News. Right. Um, yeah, RT is, is is not something I would turn to as a pretty... But, but it's significantly, uh, it's very influential, and, and it needs to be understood uh, for the impact that it has on the narrative, particularly in social media on the left. But, I mean, with something like, like support in Libya, or for, for being against government intervention in Libya, I think there's a difference that people need to make between supporting, or from, for... for between um, standing against intervention in Libya or standing against uh, a violent bombing campaign and in unequivocally supporting people like Gaddafi that have problematic connections themselves. Um, and I think having a, a really strong critical stance at all times, um, even when it's involving national liberation movements, is going to have people give people the tools to be able to critically approach all of these things and say, hey, there's things that are going on here that I think you know we should be in support of. And I think there's other things that we need to be really critical of and to be able to see hold those things um, simultaneously. Um, with uh, fascist entryists, they really want to kind of take the good with the bad. They want to say like, oh, we're going to support this uh, nominally left-wing leader, but they, who, because they also hold some nationalist politics. And I think it's okay to stand up and say like, no, it's actually the nationalism that we don't support. You know, we may have uh, solidarity with other elements, but it's, we don't have solidarity, with, for example, with the, the nationalist politics that might be racially exclusive or might make bedfellows with anti-Semites or something like that. I just don't think that they care all that much. I think that all, they, all they're interested in is any political force that they deem to be in opposition to Western liberal, the liberal establishment. So a good example of that would be the rise of Syriza in Greece. You know, the the elements of the fascist movement from Russia and elsewhere, they attempted to make significant inroads with Syriza and at the very same time significant inroads with Golden Dawn and they did those things simultaneously and they were not mutually exclusive. And I think that uh, what this is really about is not only the ideological side of nationalism, it's also about the geopolitics of uh, these movements. Right. And I think it, but I think it, it, it's also the willingness of people to want to make allies across the aisle. I think we shouldn't ever uh, ignore the potential of that. If you're talking about Syriza, I mean, there was a certain willingness to go with people who also had similar anti-capitalist rhetoric. Um, and to not really analyze that too deeply and to not really challenge that as it came in. So when, if Dugan and them are coming in and trying to make inroads of Golden Dawn as well as with, with the left-wing parties, they're doing that because they think that there actually is a chance of them collaborating and creating a stronger fascist movement. Yeah. Uh, and so severing that by having some ideological consistency on the left um, is one that stops left-wing people from basically giving them um, the fire that they need to cross over. You know, so it's like you're mentioning organizations on the left, anti-imperialist organizations. Um, I would be really surprised if those organizations maintain a strong um, boundaries about those politics that they're uh, that fascist entryism would be able to maintain itself for too long. Um, I think as as time goes on, those elements have to be pushed out uh, because they're not able to maintain ideological consistency that the organizations demand. Um, if it's on one issue, if it's on one campaign, it's a lot easier for someone to come in and do that. 
Um, that's really was true, actually, what we saw in, in Occupy of where a lot of far right people came in and tried to say, like, oh, OK, well, we're anti-banker, too. We're anti-international banker um, and to try and shift the rhetoric. But as time went on, they were very clearly segregated out. It was very clear that the conspiracy people, the libertarians and the far right elements were not a part of the dominant um, kind of working class ideology. Yeah, I think that uh, while I agree with you about the organizations and the sort of uh, structural barriers to entryism, I also fear that uh, there are millions of people, especially young people, whose politics are shaped not in organizations, nor even necessarily in the politics of the street, but rather the politics of social media, the politics of internet discourse, the politics of the chat room and the 4chan board and, you know, Reddit and so forth. And for a lot of those people, it's less it's less about you know what kind of uh, rules or ideological clarity an organization might have and more about the way in which they soak up this information and unfortunately I think that increasingly the part of the rise of the alt-right part of the rise of these fascist movements has to do with the let's call it decentralization of political discourse online right and I, but, you know that's actually a problem on the left as well as where we're seeing, that development doesn't come from interaction with movement building at all. And so it's a very kind of vacant political radicalization. Uh, people don't have the same history of engaging with struggle uh, that informs like further political ideas. Um, but we also shouldn't um, give people who develop those ideas in digital spaces too much credit because what you tend to see is that it seldom crosses over into too much action. Um, the alt-right, for example, has yet to prove itself as a movement that can really organize. There are organizations that are growing and are doing some on-the-ground organizing, but I think those who come from the left will see it as A, being kind of primitive, and B, also as being incredibly ineffective in the long term, and that they're not able to cross that Rubicon because they develop these uh, politics inside at 4chan and reddit and not in rooms talking with people um and i think also we need to continue to communicate people the importance of bringing people into uh movement spaces um under organizing spaces where the people can actually see their ideas put into practice and they can actually learn in practical situations yeah i i, I agree but i don't want to um i don't want to create sort of a false sense of um security about what they're able to do or what they're not able to do because while they may not really be able to translate into on-the-ground action as of yet they are just in their own minds even if not in reality but even if it's just in their own minds they are just about ready to have an a a vehicle in the form of state authority through donald trump that is going to allow them to operate more openly more brazenly and more, um, you know, militantly. And I think that we need to be prepared for that as well. Whether or not Trump actually is an avenue for them to power or a, you know, a pathway to power, they might think that it is. And that might be just as dangerous. Sure, sure. But we should actually kind of, let's unpack that a little bit to kind of see what they, how do they actually see themselves and what action will that actually lead to? 
Um, so they see Donald Trump as sort of a, an avenue to developing white identity. Um, and in a lot of ways, what they've done is walked backwards on the revolutionary rhetoric they developed for the 20 years prior. And so now they think that they actually do have avenues to influence power. And so it's actually moderated their views quite a bit. Um, they started doing things like offering policy papers. Now, policy papers from the alt-right, from the National Policy Institute, those go nowhere. Those have zero effects, less than zero. Um, what I think we need to think consider is um, what other ways are they going to start approaching things? One is to start targeting campuses and to recruit on college campuses. That's, I think, one of the areas where they're actually going to make the more inroads. Um, using crossover movements to recruit from. Obviously, we talked about the left entryism, but they're also going after the patriot movements and uh, uh, Trump Republican types and stuff like that. So they've shifted a little bit more to the conventional right. Um, so I think... Um, they haven't necessarily shifted in the direction of plucking from social movements like they have in the past. Um, and they've actually used this, this, this moment in the sun to moderate themselves so much that it actually has pulled some people out of their on the ground organizing. I don't want to underestimate them either though. On the other hand, they are growing massively. They have much larger organizations than they had in the past. Um, and it's even growing the kind of conventional fascist organizations like the Klan and neo-Nazi skinheads, even though those aren't the dominant faction, those are growing as well. So um, we need to be kind of uh, ready to, to see what they become, but I don't want to give um, a false sense of, of what they are because they are not as well put together and well organized as they would like to think. Well, I agree with that. Um, I, I do agree with that, although um, I think that history also does show us that um, these are the these are the kinds of things that can escalate and can escalate rather quickly, particularly as uh, conditions deteriorate. And I think that with uh, the incoming Trump administration, I think we can expect a deterioration. And um, you know, one of the things that uh, I wanted to bring up as well is the psychological aspect of what's going to happen. And I talked about this in the last couple of episodes on the show as well. What's going to happen when so many of these um, you know far right uh, you know people inside the United States, whether they identify with the alt-right or not, but people who have hitched their wagons to Trump, what's going to happen when the inevitable betrayal happens? What's going to happen when Trump turns out to be just another uh, just another leader willing to go back on every promise he made? It's going to be the stab in the back moment. And, you know, you, you opened up this conversation saying how we need to be careful about drawing parallels with Germany in the 1930s, but one of the parallels I think that is relevant is the, the, uh, the discourse that really brought the Nazis to power had to do with the stab in the back, that the German workers, the German working people were stabbed in the back by the Jew, stabbed in the back by the communists, stabbed in the back by the social democrats and the liberals who lost the war and gave away everything, right? That's, that, that feeling of being stabbed in the back really spurred on the hard fascist elements to and, and brought them to power. Similarly, I worry about how these Trump voters are going to feel that they have been stabbed in the back by Trump, the person that they put so much faith into. When that happens, I do worry about how quickly things escalate. Yeah, I, I think we can't underestimate the, the, the feeling of betrayal that fuels fascism. This feeling like something's happened to you and you have to do something about it. Yep. Um, 
what I think will happen in that case, and it will happen. I there's absolutely no way, no doubt, will <laughs> see through any economic populism. Obviously, on the left character, he is not taking care of working people. He will likely try and push to get through nationwide right to work. It will lower wages. He will likely, um, yep. you know, like what we're seeing with the cabinet post now, uh, employ the super rich to do things like go after net neutrality. Um, what will happen in that case, and I really hope I'm pro- proved wrong on this, what will happen is Trump's base will blame the left. Um, Trump will betray them, and then they will blame the left. Um, that is, in a lot of ways, the pattern of contemporary politics. Um, it's very hard to see through concrete ideological narratives. Um, I, I say that as someone that, that feels the same way at times. Um and so I think that it, as those things happen, as the ACA drops and there's not an alternative there, for example, people will say, oh, well, this is the continuing effects of the ACA. Um, I'm not a tremendous fan of the, the ACA, but, but, but things like that actually will be material things felt by working class people. Uh, as he's unable to bring back manufacturing because it's the 21st century and there's complex factors at play, they'll continue to blame left-wing uh, social policies. Um, as uh, uh, um, conflicts continue themselves, they'll continue to um, maintain the scapegoating of, of Muslim immigrants, of Black Lives Matter protesters, people like that. So I think that that betrayal that will happen, that's inevitable to happen. Um, will be one that that reaps negative effects back onto the left. Unless Trump does things that are undeniable. Um, and in that way, it, we're really unsure. Because if Trump, for example, starts appointing some hawkish foreign policy people and then goes beyond his kind of right-wing vision of himself, um, then he'll prove that he's kind of worthless even to them. Um, and that's happening to a degree with the alt-right, where they're seeing some of his cabinet point, picks, you know, and I mean besides Bannon and Sessions, but we're seeing other people, and they're not happy, you know, it's business as usual, as everyone knew it would be, um, and it could get even worse for them. Um, so I think that in a lot of ways, his fascist core might abandon him, but, I, you know, middle American that supported him, I doubt that they would. No, I don't... I, I, I don't know, maybe I wasn't clear, but I don't think they'll abandon him at all. What I think is what I think is that they have been stabbed in the back. And who stabbed us in the back? Well, it was all it was the, 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 the blacks, you know, the Muslims, the Mexicans and the Democrats and the liberals and all of these other people. But my point is that that when they get to that point, when they feel that they had a quote unquote political revolution and it didn't do shit for them. It did nothing. It it didn't change anything. Things only got worse. Well then, what is next for us? See, this is the, this is where I see the real danger. It's not in Trump. It's who picks up after Trump and picks up the pieces of what undoubtedly will be a debacle under him and reassembles them into a real fascist movement. Right, right. And takes it even further to the exactly, right. Exactly, yes. Um, that depends on the left. You know, that depends on the left being able to create a real counter narrative and not just a narrative, but a movement that shows results. You know, um, if the left can show that it actually presents a challenge, and I don't just mean moderate Democrats regaining the House or something like that. No, that's the I worst mean thing. <laughs> ideological left yeah. that presents an alternative narrative. And there's a few things that could really happen. One, for example, he could do something like um, uh, the mass deportations. Now, 
the problem with that is that um, he has a record to beat, which is Obama on mass deportations. Yeah. You know, kind of forget that the actual largest number of deportations comes under a liberal Democratic president. Yep. Um, and so uh, as Trump does this exact same thing, uh, it would be really hard to present a challenge that like, look at this dramatic thing that Trump's done that hasn't happened before. Um, he could go and build the wall. But again, it's not one that's easily material or felt. I think the Muslim registration will be. And if he actually pushes a larger deportation program like he's promising, if he actually does go after 11 million people, that is dramatic and that is huge. And I think that will have a massive backlash that's not just the effect of his policies, but of like basically setting cities on fire uh, when people resist it and when people are saying, no, we're refusing to execute those um, deportation, things like that. If he goes for right to work, if he goes after after unions, that might be the break with a lot of middle American voters because we're seeing a lot of um, union members um, supporting him in red states, you know, uh, former coal miners, auto workers, things like that. If he goes after the unions even further, um, they know what that how that results. And so I think that actually would be a really huge kind of boon against him. If he goes after net neutrality, um, you're going to see actually a lot of the alt-right and right-wing media that supported him actually going against him because it uh, affects their interests. Now. So there's a lot of things he could do that splits that and allows the left to kind of create a counter challenge and say, no, actually it's unions that keep people, um, you know, in their homes and with healthcare and things like that. You know, actually um, it's, there's a large movement against these deportations and no, people don't want to see their neighbors supported and no, they don't want to see their neighbors put on registry lists. Um, I think a lot of those things give the left the opportunity to challenge them and fight back. Um, I think what could be the worst case scenario in a lot of ways is for Trump to do all the things he promised, but to do them in such a snake around way that people barely notice. Um, that would be the worst. And so I think it's up to the left to make sure people notice, to make sure that um, that's um, that's on the tip of everyone's tongue at all times. And it's also on the, the, the responsibility of the media to continue to challenge this, to keep the narrative going, to keep the narrative that this is something that's extraordinary that's happening. It's something that people don't have to accept. Um, and that's really, really important. Yes, I, I agree. Although uh, not to not to play the, uh, the the role of the cynic or whatever, but um, you know, uh, never underestimate never underestimate the ability of people to uh, not see anything that goes against their ideological viewpoint. You know, for instance, those those liberals who you know, I'll just give one very short anecdote. I have a friend, a good friend, someone I love dearly, who is a liberal, self described liberal, supported Obama twice, et cetera, et cetera, voted for Hillary Clinton, right? He's genuinely concerned. He's genuinely worried. And he's now starting to talk to me about things that I've been talking about for a long time. And, you know, while while I love the guy, I hate to I hate to be the one who always says, yeah, but what about the two and a half million Obama deported? What about this? What about Obama's war in Libya? What about funding, you know, wars in, in, in Yemen and all these other things? I mean, I bring up a hundred different issues and, you know, he's a smart guy and politically, you know, he has he has a viewpoint, but I think that there is an ability for people to uh, unconsciously ignore those things that fly in the face of what they believe. And I fear that similarly, that's going to happen with the right. That's going to embolden them further. And I fear that it's going to move even further to the right once that inevitable betrayal becomes unavoidably you know, apparent to everybody. Right, right. I think it, I think it's also going to depend on the nature of that betrayal, you know, um, in Wisconsin, for example, with Scott Walker's law, 
um, to bust unions, you saw a lot, a lot of right wing union members come and revolt against Scott Walker. I think when something affects their interests so intimately, um, and the and the cause of it is so clear, sometimes it can be difficult. But you know, I think we also need to remember that there is an ideological war in the country that not everyone is just going to switch over. You're not going to logic your way, logic everyone into uh, agreement in some ways. And so I think that in in some. Uh, to a degree is okay. Um, it, it also, it depends on what the nature of the resistance to it looks like. You know, is it one that makes the discourse accessible to people? You know, one of the things that the right depends on is the left's inability to connect with uh, white working class people, for example, in the Midwest and the South. Is it going to figure out strategies to um, bridge those gaps. I think that's a really big answer. Well, I'm going to tell you, I, I'm going to tell you right now, just to, just to throw another thing in there. You know, a lot of people talk about the white working class. They talk about the Midwest and the South. It's everywhere. People please understand that I'm in, I'm in the Hudson Valley in New York. I'm an hour from New York city and I'm in Trump country. Okay. You, you drive to any part of upstate New York, any part of really anywhere in the Northeast that was formerly industrial. You go to parts of Northern California, the central Valley in California, all kinds of places in Oregon and Washington, all of these places also have these same issues. And so that's one of the things that I always want to push back against, not only this geographical, uh, you know, overcompensation uh, in the narrative, but also this this thing about, you know, well, it's 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 white working class. Guess what? It's white working class, period. Right, right. I mean, I think people say that to, to give people kind of a uh, um, a snapshot caricature. Right. Of no, I understand. Yeah. I just, I, I, I try to hammer that point home too, because it wasn't even as clear to me until I moved out of New York city and, you know, uh, to the Hudson Valley, I'm like, Oh shit, there are a lot of people here who are all about Trump. Yeah. You get outside of New York city and it's like the deep South, uh, through most of New York state. I lived in upstate New York and it's like, you get, yeah. you get to outside the cities and it's uh, Confederate flags and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, but I think I think what that says too is that um, it's a complete rejection of a lot of these people by the left for years and years and years. Yes. You know, people are really surprised that a bunch of farmers uh, go against their interests and support militia movements. You know, out here in Oregon, we had the Malheur occupation, and you know, while a lot of those figureheads were kind of rich, most of the people there weren't. Um, and this wasn't, you know, giving um, you know public land over to uh, mining interests is not in their. It doesn't serve them in any way. Um, so where do they get at with that? Well, it's because while the farm crisis of the 80s and 90s was happening, as people were not able to uh, pay their mortgages anymore, as people were losing their jobs, as Main Street was dying in a lot of parts of the country, the left wasn't there to provide them with narratives and with organizing opportunities. Well, and, you know, what, and it was the right. One of the difficult things for the left, and, and I've experienced this personally, is that you find yourself kind of in the middle of, of, of a very complex situation where you have a lot of, you know, say, for instance, in Oregon, I know, and I'm sure you know better than I do, one of the one of the major battles had to do with dam removal, right? Mm -hmm. And that the, that is an issue that is rather divisive. If you're a working class, you know, f person who depends on, you know, water, I don't know, cattle grazing or farming or whatever, you find yourself in, in in contradiction or in confrontation with environmental activists and in your mind then the left is nothing but people who want to take away your livelihood right and the, the same thing was true of the anti-logging movements of the 80s and 90s yeah uh, same string was true in the anti northeast anti-coal anti-coal yeah exactly 
Right. And so and, and whether or not I mean, you know, I, you know, clearly I'm not in favor of fracking, for example, I don't think it provides long term jobs. But in a place that's economically under attack, the prospect of good paying jobs is enough to let people do a lot of things. Yep. Um, and for people who don't understand that and they want to kind of uh, caricaturize uh, rural people or people, you know, not kind of part of a, a, a liberal elite inside cities as being, uh, you know, backwards or, um, you know, undereducated, things like that. It, all it does is ignore their actual real world interests and real world crisis. Um, and when they need someone to blame, the right's there to give them someone. And we need to be able to stop that. Um, that's why there's a lot of organizations that actually organize in these areas that confront these issues directly. Um, that need to get more attention than they do um, because it is something that the left in general has been centered in the cities and centered on city issues and hasn't actually looked at the working class in a lot of other parts of the country. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, um, you know, so uh, one of the things that has become popular and we're just about out of time here, but I, I just want to get this in is is this um you know, this this return, quote unquote, a return to issues of white working class politics. And while that's important, I think that we also have to keep in mind that uh, the the left that at least the left that that I came up in, the left, uh, you know, that you came up in, I'm sure I, I don't know how old you are, but I assume you're relatively close in age, um, you know, that that one of the commitments that we make is a commitment to the defense of immigrants, the commitment to the defense of marginalized communities, a commitment to the defense of all of the people that have been under attack by Trump. So on the one hand, and and, and that movement. So on the one hand, we want to, uh, of course, return to addressing issues of white working class voters and or white working class in general. On the other hand, we also don't want to do that at the expense of migrant communities, immigrants, uh, you know, uh, marginalized, oppressed communities. And unfortunately, in my opinion, at least, we are seeing a lot of that happening in, in places in Europe. In the wake of Brexit, as you had a huge spike in racist attacks, racially motivated hate crimes and so forth, you have a left that is more interested in, you know, parliamentary politics and in reaching out to the, uh, to the pro-Brexit voter, former Labour voter and so forth, rather than in making a militant defense of these uh, uh, oppressed communities. And I think that that's a very real danger that we need to be aware of. You can't simply throw them under the bus because you think that you got to reconnect with white working class. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because people are facing real danger. You know, we're seeing like just a massive spike in hate crimes in the U.S. Absolutely. And that a lot of people very, very fearful. Um, and I'm thinking especially people that have outward signifiers. So people were walking around um, in a climate that blamed Muslims uh, wearing a hijab is very scary. For a lot of folks, um, and we need to be there to stand with them. And I think one of the ways that we don't sacrifice that, and also talk, talking about the white working class, is to make sure that those issues that affect those people are always being discussed. But we don't have to court people who are actively engaging in bigotry, and we don't have to ignore that because there's actual imperative crisis happening right now. So if we keep, for example, up the discussion about what rural Americans are facing, it addresses a lot of those issues without having to kind of succumb to uh, to ignoring what the real problems are in a lot of these places. You know, and the environmental movement has has dealt with this for a long time, where like for example, anti-fracking or going after um, a logging, um, a lot of support was needed in rural communities, and a lot of people would be kind of 
try and set their base there and have to ignore uh, what real obvious issues with bigotry and transphobia and things like that that were happening there. And I think that presents a real conundrum for strategically for how people to go forward. But one thing is clear that people need to keep their priorities uh, in check and remember a lot of people are facing a lot of fear and a lot of threats right now. Well, and and the one thing that I always stress to people when they when they say, oh, well, you know, you gotta, you know, because because uh, these people these people in rural America or in the Midwest or in the South, they've been made invisible or whatever. Well, the reality is that, uh, and I mean, I'm not trying to be, you know, to demean their their experience or whatever because I do think it's important. But the reality is what that actually is saying is that these people in the Midwest and in the South, these white working class voters, these people people who have been forgotten, they have been experiencing for the last 20 years what black communities and other communities have been experiencing for generations. In other words, in, in other words, the feeling of being marginalized, the feeling of being oppressed, the feeling of being erased from the narrative of having no voice, that's exactly what black people have been trying to tell white people for 100 plus years. Right, right. Uh, I think the same can be said, for example, the, the housing crisis. Um, it wasn't a housing crisis for a lot of people that have been in a housing crisis for decades. Um, yeah. But what it does is present an opportunity for cross-class solidarity and for organizing in that way and saying, like, look, now you're experiencing that the people have been talking about for years. And are you going to unite along the interests of working class people? Or are you going to try and hold on to the last vestiges of white privilege that you had that are slowly shrinking away from you? You know, we need to show people that it's in their material interests to oppose racism, that that's in their actual material interests. Um, and that is a conversation that, that hasn't happened in a lot of those communities. And so, like, yeah, we need to be very aware that the, the kind of attack on rural American jobs has been happening for folks of color for decades. Um, and that attack on the job, that inability to have control of the workplace is a common issue that can really unite people to organize. Well, and Shane, the other thing is that, um, you know, Focusing on racism is not an obsession with identity politics. I don't know how many times we have to say this over and over again, but the the look, I'm I'm not Mr. Identity Politics myself. I think they can be what what we call identity politics at least can be rather problematic oftentimes for many different reasons. But, you know, the the notion that addressing issues of uh, you know, racial hatred, racial discrimination or discrimination against the LGBT community or discrimination against immigrants or whatever, that this is somehow identity politics and therefore superficial and therefore not relevant to the larger issues of class. This is also something that needs to be fully addressed on the left. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of discourse, that kind of class reductionism should be just abolished. That should be a thing of 40 years ago. We shouldn't even have to contend with that anymore. Um, the issues of, of homophobia, of transphobia, of racism, of misogyny, those are material issues of people that is, to a degree, uh, an issue of class. And it's one that's inextricably, I mean, it's, it's linked in every detailed way. We cannot delink those things and put one as primary over the other. We can't say that suddenly, um, no, you're just working class, unite and fight, that's what you need. And that, that's ridiculous. Um, we do need to, to have discussion with people that have certain amounts of privilege about understanding their material need and coming together with marginalized groups and fighting that marginalization. Because um, otherwise what you have is a kind of liberal morality politics that I don't think has longevity, doesn't have legs, and doesn't have teeth. Um, it's more of a politics of charity and what you want is a politics of solidarity. So having that material interest 
and, and dismantling white supremacy, for example, is something that really mobilizes uh, white workers, for example, to join in um, and fight against um, kind of the systemic racism that we still see. Well, and, and the, the other thing I just want to note is that one of the really, um, I think, rather embarrassing things that I've seen in the wake of uh, Trump's election, uh, embarrassing from a left perspective, is that some some of my uh, leftist, uh, you know, friends and, and uh, colleagues and friends on Facebook or whatever, they've kind of delighted in this discourse of, you know, really condescending towards the anti-Trump protesters, like, uh, you know, the people who are out there protesting against Trump, like, where were you in 2011 when Obama was bombing Libya, or where were you with the the, uh, you know, opposing the war in Syria, or where were you on this issue, on the deportations, or you weren't there, therefore you have no right to be in the streets and protesting, and, you know, I'm obviously caricaturizing it to some degree, but there is that knee-jerk reaction of sort of territoriality or whatever, but one of the things that I always stress to people is, you have to remember that issues like Libya or Syria or questions of imperialism or geopolitical issues or whatever, these require study, they require a little bit of understanding of of, of a broad base of issues, seeking out different sources, understanding historical uh, antecedents and things like that. Imperialism itself is a complex subject on which there's a vast literature and no significant, you know, many significant disagreements. Um, but issues of racism, issues of hatred, uh, somebody yelling at you on the street, these things are quite visceral. I mean, it doesn't take a ton of study to understand them. And I think that people on the left should really stop and think about about what this difference in these kinds of issues means and how we address both of them without demeaning one in favor of the other. Yeah, I, I think making fun of, of, of protesters or saying, like, where were you when this was happening? I mean, that's just elitism. It's totally non-useful. Um, they're here now. But there's um, a lot of it. There's a lot of that. There is a yeah. lot of that. It's certainly in the beginning of the anti-Trump protest. There really was a lot of that. Yeah, and I think that I, 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 just to be frank with you, I think the people do criticize the people should be scolded for that. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. Like the, these people are here now. I think, I think, like you're saying, um, issues with Libya are very complicated, um, and it, I, I would not be surprised if large factions of people didn't know anything about it. And why would they? Their lives are hard. There's a lot going on. It's hard to get engaged. And you're right. Watching your neighbor be attacked on the street is a very mobilizing factor. And if people are getting involved in things now because of that, that's great. And I don't think that chastising them for not awakening sooner is it does anyone any good. You know, I was just at the Trump protest here in Portland. There was about 4,000 people there. And hundreds, if not thousands of them, were like high school students. Yep. The first time they'd ever done anything. Um, and they were excited and they were angry. Um, and why um, and why kind of uh, insult that and, and, and caricaturize it? You know, I think uh, raising uh, a bar to participation is not in the favor of anyone who wants to build a, like a broad based movement. No. And what it is, is incumbent upon people, people like us or who have been through these things to help them see through a lot of the manipulations and machinations. One of the popular memes around the anti-Trump protests, and I've talked about this in recent episodes as well, is that, you know, George Soros is the master puppeteer behind it all, you know, pulling all the strings. Everyone is a paid dupe of George Soros. This is the meme that was put forward all over social media. Russian media got in on this as well, of course. Um, and this is 
something that uh, let's leave aside the you know the the fact that this is really just a uh, iteration of the Rothschilds kind of meme and Rothschild world, but focusing rather on the fact that we learned these lessons during the Bush years. We know that MoveOn.org and the other foundation connected organizations that they're always going to be in these uh, social movements. They're always going to try to manipulate them and and redirect them towards Democratic Party vehicles and so forth. And we know all of that. So it's our responsibility to be there, to be supportive of the protests, and to make sure that other people are aware of the experience that we've already gone through so that it doesn't happen again. Why is that so hard? Yeah, yeah. I um, I think I think there can I think people on the left sometimes use have the same cynical outlook that anyone does and use it as an opportunity to kind of signal, um, the, you know, their their political position inside of a community. I, I think instead um, showing that um, when people are getting involved, when new people are getting involved in stuff, saying, showing, hey, there's projects that have existed for years that are doing these this work. And um, we'd love to have those people there finding ways of pivoting existing projects to confront the new realities. That's really important. And finding ways of, again, not just giving into kind of the old failed strategies um, and giving and coming in there and saying, like, hey, there's some ideas that are happening. And also um, the willingness to hear new people and to hear their perspectives coming in, to hear their ideas and to make them an intimate part of it to not talk down to them. Well, and also in in having a clear understanding of um, the ideological commitments you make. So, for instance, when, you know, uh, right wing white supremacy types say, you know, we don't want any we don't want any of these refugees because they're all terrorists, not confronting them by saying, no, they're not all terrorists. That's not really the right kind of argumentation. Rather, it's about, well, asking questions about imperialism, what creates those refugees, but also asking about do do you want a society that welcomes people like that, that welcomes immigrants, that welcomes and incorporates them into a broader social landscape rather than this kind of like exclusivity? And unfortunately, I do see some of that emerging on the left as well. People, uh, you know, working class people in Britain who supported Brexit or whatever, working class people in the United States, they need to be... um, let's say, guided away from the fallback positions of what I would consider to be white supremacy and racism. Right, right. I, I think part of that is having an ongoing discussion inside these circles about where these issues come from. How did we get to where we are? Um, getting people to understand the issues, the systemic racism, having that be an ongoing part of the discussion is something that's really sorely needed if you want to have a coherent analysis and a movement that has the ability to really confront these issues and avoid entryism. You know, Empowering people with the tools to understand racism is critical, to understand the issues of, of, of growing transphobia, uh, the, under, the issues of the targeting of, of Muslim immigrants specifically. People need to have a, a historical understanding of it, where it comes from, um, how it works, and where our role is in opposing it. Well, and also we the leadership. I mean, there there needs to be some kind of leadership. I'm not saying you know a fully formed top down structure where everybody re, you know is is uh, accountable to one individual. But you do need people with a national personality, with a national stage that can go out there and defend these positions. And that's one of, in my opinion, that's one of the major failings of Corbyn and the left in Britain is that they're not doing that. They're really not defending migrant communities 
countries, uh, you know, African immigrants and uh, immigrants from South Asia and so forth, as and Eastern Europe as well, as much as they should be. And I think the reason is because they fear repercussions from the white working class that supported things like Brexit or in the U.S. analog, the white working class that supports Trump. Right. Um, I also would caution against um focusing too heavily on on strong personalities that can dominate movements sometimes um you know a a cult of personality itself can actually replace the on the ground work of creating democratic organizations and uh so we want to make sure that we actually empower uh kind of a rank and file organizing that that gets everyone involved i think at the same time though it's about uh, having a certain kind of loud messaging that can continue to have an uh um these ideas extended far beyond the echo chamber of organization. Well, that's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. I'm not saying I want a cult of personality, quite the opposite. What I'm saying though, is that people, people on a national stage with a national platform and a bullhorn that can get, that can be on CNN or whatever and taking up these issues. Unfortunately, Sanders fails on all of these counts. Sanders fails on the issues of imperialism. He fails on the, really the issues of minorities in general, which was uh, painfully apparent during his campaign. Now they made attempts to rectify that, uh, I will admit, but people like that who have a national presence, I think would go a long way towards helping build a decentralized and democratic grassroots movement. People like that can bring out many people out of the woodwork. And unfortunately, I feel like we're really in many ways starting from square one right now. Right. Um, sometimes there's worse places to be though. Um, one of the things that we saw with a lot of those loud voices, I'm thinking Sanders specifically, Sanders mobilized a lot of people. He got them really excited and really active, even opening their wallets, all for Sanders. But I have yet to see that really big uh, flood of Sanders people flood into movements. Exactly. Um, That's yes. And, and I, I think the same can be said of the Green Party and Jill Stein and people like that. Um, I agree. That I there agree. was a real big effort to channel them into projects that I don't think are particularly effective. Um, I, I think that they, they, they go, they, they're really loud, but they don't actually channel people into the long game of organizing and what that actually looks like. And so I'd like to see some of those loud voices, like you're mentioning that can really mobilize people, um, uh, have messaging about getting involved in these projects, getting involved in regional projects that coordinate on a national and international scale. Uh, because that's what I'd like to see people putting their effort, time and money. I totally agree with that 100%. We could go on for another four hours, but we will have to leave it there. Uh, Shane Burley, his work is top-notch. I highly recommend it. Follow him on Twitter, at Shane underscore Burley1. The website, ShaneBurley.net. And uh, look out for his forthcoming book. I don't know when and don't know what it's called, but it'll be coming out soon from AK Press, a book on neo-fascism. I'm sure that'll be great. Shane Burley, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. And listeners, thank you as always. Speak to you again next week.